I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. All right, before we get going, let's talk about a few pieces of news. Uh, Scarlett Johansson will be producing an upcoming Tower of Terror movie for Disney. I'm a little bit wary of this one because the last time they tried this, it didn't go so well. You are doubting Steve Gutenberg? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> Jungle Cruise isn't out yet. I would at least wait and see how Jungle Cruise does before you try to do another ride-based movie. I mean, ride-based movies and Disney have not done terribly well. Except unless you're Pirates of the Caribbean. That's I mean, it. Pirates is the one kind of glaring exception, but every other time they've tried to do it, it really has not gone well. Haunted Mansion, Country Bears. Mm. I, uh, it's it's not a good it's not a good track record, and I'm wondering if halfway through this movie, the Guardians of the Galaxy show up and it's their movie. Yeah, I mean that would be better. Tower of Terror looked like to me. I never got to write it because it opened after my last time at at Disney as a kid, and. I really want to go on it because I am such a massive Twilight Zone fan. So I've always wanted to go on it. But to be honest, it always kind of looked like, let's take Haunted Mansion and then put a drop ride at the end of it. Hmm. You're not exactly wrong. Because the version in Florida is you go up the elevator, then you go through like a... The elevator actually leaves the cabinet and you actually go through like a dark ride style of uh, Twilight Zone style effects. And then you get the drop. Was the one in Hollywood different? The one in, in California was just you go into the elevator, you go up, you see... You go to the, you go to the top floor, you see the... Uh, Guests disappear, and then you do the drop. Oh, yeah, that does out... sound different, yeah. Yeah, they completely cut out the, the dark ride portion. Yeah, well, the one that I... Oh, I don't I don't even think I knew about the one in California for the longest time. Um, and when they said, like, they've converted Tower of Terror into uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy thing, I was like, oh, no, they... They've taken away the one in Florida because it was the only one I, I knew about. So I was very confused on that end for a long time. Um, but that was the only one I knew about. So I was like, oh, well, it's, you know, it's you go up the elevator, it's the dark ride, and then you end with the drop. That's the only concept I had for that ride. So for me, it was just Haunted Mansion with, like, a, an adrenaline bit at the end mm -hmm. um which honestly is kind of where i'm at <laughs> as a park goer like I, I want all of the haunted mansion kind of cool stuff and then you know one quick jolt at the end is is kind of awesome you know 
the only thing is that I don't think this the movie will have any of that Twilight Zone element because of CBS and Viacom kind of doing their own version of Twilight Zone with uh, with Jordan Peele. Yeah, and that show mm, that show gets a lot of crap. I liked it. I liked what it was going for. There was a real meta aspect to it. Um, I'm kind of sad they're done with it, but I realized that Jordan Peele's got better stuff to do, frankly. <laughs> it's like, what is Tower of Terror without the Twilight Zone thing? Is I think they're just going to have the mystery of the elevator, of the of the, man, of the uh, hotel, that these people went into the elevator of the hotel, they disappeared, and someone is going to solve the mystery. I don't know if Scarlett Johansson is going to be in the movie, but she is set to be a producer on the movie. Well, okay. I've seen that before, and it was called American Horror Story Hotel. Like, I'm sorry, but any way you look at it, I've seen this film. I, I don't know. <sighs> Disney's going to have to do something really interesting between now and the first trailer to really get me on board with this. Right now, I am very disinterested in this. Uh, we'll see where it goes. Again, I, I think it's a little too soon. Again, we don't know the reception that Black Widow's going to get, and we don't know the reception of Jungle Cruise yet. And to put the star of Black Widow with a concept based off a ride like like the way they're doing with Jungle Cruise, I think it's just they're putting the, they're putting too much faith up up front, and I, I would wait. But Disney gonna Disney. Eh. All right, let's move on. Uh, Disney's live action Snow White. We kind of mentioned this back when we talked about Snow White. Uh, looks like this is just going to be a straight up retelling of Snow White, and they have their live action Snow White. Uh, Rachel Zegler or Ziegler. Uh, who will be starring as Maria in the upcoming West Side Story remake with uh, Steven Spielberg. Let's get the, the big quote-unquote controversy out of the way. She is half Colombian, uh, and it is garnering a bunch of racist backlash online. The main thing I'm going to say is that we always get the same argument from people is that why are they always casting white people in these roles? Well, they're the best actor for the job, and fine but what if she's the best actor for the job what if all the people who auditioned for snow white rachel ziegler or zegler or whatever what if she is the one that blew them all away and say oh she's the best singer we've got uh, who auditioned she is the better the best looking woman she's the best actor but then you're not but that but they don't want to hear that i i will say i don't really know anything uh about her and uh, I I haven't seen her anything. Uh, I have been looking forward to West Side Story. Um, the cast, uh, the other people in the cast look amazing. But I will say that what I have heard uh, following the making of West Side Story is that everyone who has been on set and been involved in the um, kind of tangentially with the production of this film has come back and said, this girl's voice is going to blow your mind. And if that's the case, I think that's probably what got her the part as Snow White. 
Um, and uh, if that's the case, I think that Disney may have made a shrewd move. Um, because Snow White's voice was kind of the thing that blew everybody's mind originally, too. I mean, it was, wow, a full-length animated feature film was the one thing, but then that voice, we've talked about it. Mm -hmm. So if they're doing the same thing again in live action, where you're just like, wow, that voice, then good move on Disney's part, but we won't know until we hear it. Yeah, this Snow White is going to depend greatly on how people take in this remake of West Side Story. I know it's different studios, I know it's different directors, but the general public's not going to care about that. They're going to see this this woman in as Maria, and her performance in that movie will completely either sell or break this Snow White remake. But the interesting thing is, is that she has played a few... Um, I, I looked into her, and she has played a few Disney princesses on stage already. As a kid, she kept getting cast as Disney princesses in various community theaters and school productions and stuff like that. So she's played Ariel on stage. She's played Belle. And so she kept getting cast as various Disney princesses, and... Years ago, before she got cast in anything of note on social media, she kept posting pictures of herself in, um, like, Disney Halloween costumes and pictures of her at Disney uh, parks, posing with cast members dressed as princesses, and just constantly talking about how all she wanted to be was a Disney princess. And now she will be one. <laughs> and now she will be one. And if all things aside, a little girl who dreamed of growing up and being a Disney princess just grew up to be a Disney princess. And to me, that is kind of the coolest thing in the world. As a little girl who dreamed of growing up to be a Disney princess, I cannot imagine what that must feel like. And so all other considerations aside, holy crap, girl, Go go get your Disney princess dream. <laughs> Let's move on to our main feature, The Rescuers Down Under. When we started this podcast almost two years ago. Long ago in the before four. <laughs> back when you could go places and, and not have to wear people. And not have to wear pieces of cloth on your face. Oh, uh, yeah. Good times, good times. Anyway, back then, we made the decision that we were going to start the podcast with the era that kind of defined our childhood, the Disney Renaissance. And we have done every every movie in the Disney Renaissance, save one. Uh, the reason we haven't done The Rescuers Down Under yet is because we were kind of waiting for the right time to do the first one because uh, we didn't really want to do a sequel before we did the original. And uh, we finally got a chance to do the original last week. So, why not write the final page in this chapter of Disney movies? So, we've mentioned it last week that The Rescuers is the highest financially successful movie of the post-Walt pre-Renaissance era. In fact, by the time Michael Eisner, Frank Wells, and Jeffrey Katzenberg joined the company, it had been the most financially successful movie overall. 
I'm still trying to figure that one out. Yeah, this is probably the weirdest bit of Disney trivia ever. The most confusing. Why Why that movie? In a pre-Little Mermaid world. That one. Well, honestly, uh, I think we enjoyed the Black Cauldron more than we enjoyed the Rescuers. That says a lot. Yeah, I mean, the Black Cauldron really is known as like, oh, that's that's Disney whiffing it good. You know, that uh, Disney almost closed because of that. It, it almost killed Disney. There is more to enjoy, at least for the two of us, I think we found more to enjoy in the Black Cauldron than... There was definitely more potential in Black Cauldron than the first Rescuers movie. Yeah, and I don't know what the what the books are like in The Rescuers. Mm-hmm. The books kind of sounded cool, you know, when 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 we looked into them and it was like you know, there's a political prisoner poet stuck in jail and these mice try to keep his spirits up. And it, that sounds like a book I want to read. And instead, what we got was Cruella Denot putting some kid in a bayou to get a diamond. I don't. I don't even. It was such a mess. <laughs> so it was one of Disney's most successful films. It was Disney's most successful animated film. So when Michael Eisner takes over, of course he wants to do a sequel to the most successful movie they've got. And in that infamous pitch meeting where where Eisner and Wells and Katzenberg are getting all of the animators together and asking them what kind of movies they want to make. We've talked about it many times over. Uh, Oliver Twist with Dogs, Treasure Planet in Space, and a sequel to The Rescuers. And we've done all of those movies except the sequel to The Rescuers. So here we go. So it was kind of a no-brainer. It doesn't matter what... Yes, Disney at the time was very against sequels. Walt was very against the idea of sequels. Even though Disney themselves had done a few for their live-action movies. Uh, the Absent-Minded Professor got Son of Flubber. Misadventures of Merlin Jones got uh, The Monkey's Uncle. And uh, quite a few uh, Her- uh, Herbie the Love Bug movies. Oh yeah, The Apple Dumpling Gang got a sequel. But they never did one for their animated movies. So, yeah, why not do the most successful one you've got? It's a no-brainer, and from a studio perspective, guaranteed money. We all know how modern Disney loves their guaranteed money movies. I I think that's pretty much everything that Disney puts out now. (laughs) Also, uh, much like Walt, uh, Eisner was very much interested in new filming techniques. And computers were becoming a thing. We've kind of talked a little bit about it uh, several times on the podcast before. As uh, a relatively upstart computer company named Pixar was trying to get into the animation business. Whatever happened to them? I don't know. Doesn't, doesn't ring a bell. So yeah, Disney and Pixar... Again, the Disney-Pixar relationship goes back a lot further than people think it does. Pixar uh, created the CAPS system, Computer Animation Production System, 
that Disney would use for pretty much every animated movie, starting with The Little Mermaid. A lot of the effects done for Little Mermaid was done through this cap system. But The Rescuers has that distinction of being the first animated movie to be completely animated on computers. No cells, no, uh, yes, hand-drawn animation, but all of the inking, coloring, and animation was all done on computers, which was very interesting for a lot of the boomers and Gen X animators trying to learn how to use a computer. Computer. Yeah, so (laughs) that was fun. Also, this is one of the first movies to use the freshly opened Disney MGM Studios. Ten minutes of this movie was animated at the Disney MGM Studios, which uh, would have a hand in pretty much all of the Disney Renaissance movies. We have to talk, though, about the other uh, big cultural moment Oh, I was going to get to that, but we can talk about that. Yeah, I want to talk about that <laughs> really much cuz we've talked about some of the some of the background stuff in the in the um the Renaissance before and and caps and all that, but we haven't talked about the cultural moment that gave us this film. So, for the younger people out there who may not know, there was a time where America was really obsessed with Australia. So obsessed. (laughs) And it all started with a movie that came out in 1986 called Crocodile Dundee. The little kid in this film keeps having like a tiny little Swiss Army knife. And I kept wanting somebody to just wander out and be like, no, kid, that ain't a knife. This is a knife. (laughs) Like, (laughs) it's so bad. Oh, So, yeah, we wouldn't have had that. The Crocodile Hunter, Steve Irwin, if it wasn't for Crocodile Dundee. And, oh, you know, this is a name that probably only the two of us are going to remember. Yahoo Serious? (laughs) I I don't know. It's... (sighs) Foster's Australian for beer. Uh, So, yeah, it was just a thing in, in America that was just obsessed with Australia and Australian culture. So you take... The most popular, the most financial successful animated movie that Disney had at that time with America's obsession with Australia and you put it together. Oh, it's a can't miss prospect. No, no, this movie didn't do so well at the theater, mostly because um, it opened against um, a a movie that we've uh, talked about before. Home Alone. Yeah, this we keep talking about the fact that Disney has an unfortunate an unfortunate habit of opening against things that absolutely crushed them at this time. Since the movie essentially bombed at the box office within one week, uh Katzenberg had all of the advertisement for the movie pulled. It's not like today where everything's on the internet and everything's on the internet forever. They were gone from print. They were gone from television. They were gone from radio. If you did not already know this movie was out, you wouldn't know. Disney didn't have the pull it does now. Um, Disney now with a theater uh, will say, 
we don't care what the movie is making you. We don't care if nobody's coming to see it. You have to guarantee to run this in a certain number of screens in your theater for this many weeks before we'll let you show it at all. Sometimes if you don't do that for their smaller films, they won't let you show the bigger films like the next MCU movie. But at the time, if a movie wasn't making money, theaters would just pull it. Um, which really made you need to go see it. You know, for, for anyone younger in our audience who doesn't remember that time, there was a big push to, like, if you wanted to go see a movie, you wanted to go see a movie in the first weekend or two, because if it didn't make enough money, it wasn't going to be there weekend three. If the television advertising disappears and it doesn't make enough money, you know, week one or two, it's just gone. You know? it's And then you have to wait nine months, a year, maybe, for it to come out on VHS at the time. Let's go ahead and kind of do our, our thing. I think we've talked enough about the backstory. Um, we got some of the original cast. Yeah, a lot of the same cast. We got Bob Newhart and Eva Gabor back. This is Eva Gabor's final film role. Yeah, these, the Rescuers movies kill a lot of people. (laughs) There is a high body count with the, we talked about that last week, is like most of the the cast that was like, and in their final film role, (laughs) you know. um, This was Ava Gabor's final, final film role. Um, She passed in, in 95. Bernard Fox comes back as the chair mouse, also playing uh, the doctor. Yeah, I, that's that's it. That's as much of the of the original cast that they were able to bring back. Yeah, um, most of them, as we said last week, that was their final film role, or they had passed in in the time since. And uh, unfortunately, they were trying to get Jim Jordan to come back, but he had passed on right before they started uh, recording lines for this film. Yeah. Um. So in instead of uh, Orville the Albatross, who we had in the previous film, we get his brother, Wilbur. That sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, and it's played uh, by, of course, the legendary John Candy. Uncle Buck, plane trains and automobiles, the great outdoors, space balls, stripes. He would also be in Home Alone. One of the greats to come out of the... Um, the Toronto uh, branch of Second City. SCTV was amazing. The thing about him here is that he's almost weirdly understated. I I like his performance in this film because it is a little more understated for him, um, but it fits the tone of the film this is a little bit more serious film than the first movie was and to have wacky john candy probably he's still wacky in this movie but to have him in the -the over-the-top characters he's known to play as wouldn't fit in the style that they're trying to tell here he's a more grounded version of himself which Mm. is odd for a bird and an albatross i don't know um but uh really interesting performance uh and a good, a good addition to the cast. I really enjoyed him in this, 
He's probably my favorite part of the film, honestly. Whew. George C. Scott uh, as our villain here for this one. Percival McLeach, the poacher, who uh, is our our much better villain than Madame Cruella for... What was her name? Madame Medusa. Madame Medusa. Our Cruella de Vil, who is not Cruella de Vil from, from the last film. Um, the interesting thing about uh, George C. Scott is he was he he is not a comedic actor, but he keeps showing up sometimes in um, like satire. Like he has a really good part in Doctor Strangelove. And a lot of the motions of McLeach is based off his performance in Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, but he's probably best known for playing Patton in the biopic Patton. Uh, I, I mean, that that's his Oscar right there. Um, I read your book! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can't say the full line because this is a family podcast. <laughs> We're a family show. Um, but yeah, uh, the... Uh, but he is also like like you said this is a a strangely more serious film and he brings that serious he is you know madame medusa was just like you know i hate children and i want a diamond she looks scary cuz she looks like cruella deville but she didn't really have any gravitas to her like you didn't really feel scared of her even as a kid i don't think i'd find her scary mccleach terrifies you even as an adult and you know we talk we talk about cruella deville because of the um the connection with the the character from the first film this dude puts cruella deville to shame because like yeah cruella wants furs this guy is uh, killing and skinning animals every day. When you get back to his lair, it is covered in animal skins. To the point where the animals in the movie are saying, well, the only way I'm getting out here is as a purse. <laughs> uh, he, he is running a death camp for animals, and the animals know it. Like, half of this film is a horror film. George C. Scott plays it 100% completely straight the whole time. I mean, he's having fun, but he's not camp. He's not uh, over the top. This is a guy you could meet in real life, and it's terrifying. And our last kind of big addition to the to the cast is um, Jake, the, uh, the little hopping mouse that helps out uh, Bernard and Bianca. And he is played by Tristan Rogers. Uh, Tristan Rogers is an Australian actor who mostly lives and works in America. He plays uh, Robert Scorpio on the soap opera General Hospital. That is his main uh, <laughs> main claim to fame. As far as I know, he is still on the show he's not a main character in general hospital anymore but he is a recurring character so he's yeah still there. 
I mean, he's he's still he's still working. He's still going. Uh, he's seventy five right now. Um, but yeah, um, the character of Jake is dressed and sounds like and acts like just like Crocodile Dundee. Yeah, it is. It is very clear that they were hopping mouse in on that <laughs> that, <laughs> that uh, Crocodile Dundee. Uh, thing he is he is very much meant to evoke that in the adult audience at least anyway a couple of people who uh have come back that we've talked about on the show before uh russy taylor gets a, a cute little cameo as the nurse mouse and she is using the Minnie mouse voice Let's yeah kid they are very much Minnie mouse uh things but they are the creepiest things they are these little dead-eyed mice that run around, and they all talk like Minnie Mouse. It's just really, really creepy. Especially, well, kind of a spoiler, but they use a shotgun, and they're these cute little... Imagine Minnie Mouse trying to aim a shotgun. It is the funniest thing over here. Yeah. Um, and we have uh, Douglas Seal as uh, Krebs the Koala, and you'll know Douglas Seal because he is the Sultan from Aladdin. He is uh, Jasmine's dad. Same voice. Yeah, it is. It is pretty much the same voice, except uh, somehow what a bit next? more, a bit more gay. It's like a bit more affected. If the, um, it, the, the, the he's using a really bad Australian accent. Yeah, he's trying to sound Australian, and it just doesn't work. And, um, of course, we have Frank Welker. The legendary Frank Welker. Yeah, know him, love him. Frank Welker is um, the vocal effects behind uh, the giant eagle at the center of the story, and then also Joanna the... The lizard that yes. is Marahute, uh, the eagle. Yes. Yeah. Ma, ma, yeah. I never know how to pronounce that because they don't really say it a lot in the movie. Mm. Um. But uh, and then uh, Joanna, the the evil lizard that goes around with McLeach, who also probably my se second favorite. Pro no, probably my favorite character. I think John Candy's my favorite performance, but I think Joanna's my favorite character in the entire film because she's just so much fun. You just want to, you know, lay around like a lizard and eat eggs all day. <laughs> uh, especially if they're deviled. If they're deviled, I could eat like, I don't know, ten dozen deviled eggs in a day. It's 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 pretty incredible how many eggs I can put away if you're like... I'm gonna devil those eggs. I'm like, I could, I could eat twice my weight in deviled eggs. I think in a day. Um, challenge accepted. But, yeah, <laughs> challenge accepted entirely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, some some good uh, returning talent there. I've got oh. one more piece of uh, of thing before we get into here. So we have the the young boy Cody, who's our main kid in this movie. Uh, originally, this was supposed to be an Aborigines child. Huh. And was supposed to be voiced by an Aborigines uh, actor. But um, certain people in high rank said that uh, a non-white child may not, uh, may not appeal to their general audience. So Cody became a white kid. Oh, wow. How fun. 
Yeah, so let's let's uh, let's kind of get into this movie here. Let's talk about Cody now that we've uh, now that I brought that up. So Cody here seems to have his own little rescue aid society as he wakes up to a didgeridoo sound and he's immediately out the door, gets his little pocket knife. He wakes up his little animal friends and they meet up to find out that the giant eagle named Marahute has been captured by a poacher and they're going to rescue him. So automatically off the bat, we get this notion that Cody really loves animals to the point where he's going to save all of these animals from these poacher traps and has gotten the other animals in the outback to kind of be his team, which is a nice little character trait for him. He really likes animals. There's, there's a a couple of things. Um, I found it really hilarious that it was like, how else are you going to know you're in Australia if we don't use the didgeridoo over every single part of this opening sequence? <laughs> At first, the movie makes you think that's kind of just his alarm clock. Like, his alarm clock just sounds like a didgeridoo. Because Australia! <laughs> you can tell that this is a movie made by a bunch of Americans who have been to Australia for like a weekend, you know? (laughs) One of the uh, oddest things is that there's a really weird distinction of which animals can talk and which ones can't. And which ones look anthropomorphized and which ones look like regular animals. This is a thing that Disney does a lot, though. Mickey Mouse has clothes and Pluto is just a dog. In the in this early you know sequence, it's like the kangaroo absolutely one hundred percent speaks English, but some of the other animals in that thing don't seem to speak English, and then the eagle does not seem to understand him at all, and it definitely doesn't speak. Meanwhile, Joanna understands English, doesn't talk. All of the all of the animals in the Poacher death camp seem to be able to both speak and understand English. Let's kind of backtrack to this opening. It's a beautiful opening. It's very well animated. How the 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 the, the way the the eagle's wings spread out as the ro- as Cody breaks the ropes, the 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 way the animation on Cody falling and and the entire sequence of Cody riding on the eagle is amazing. Yeah, the uh, it also starts a running theme that Cody is not that bright. He starts to cut the rope to be like, hey, look, I'm going to let you free. And the eagle lashes out and almost makes him fall. And instead of Cody being like, okay, calm down. I don't want to fall off this giant rock to my death, which I think even at like eight, I think both of us would have been like, falling to my imminent death from a giant rock, bad idea. <laughs> let's calm the giant animal. Which, by the way, okay, let's talk about this eagle. Mm-hmm. This eagle is not an eagle from Earth. This eagle is from Middle Earth. It was sent here by Gandalf to grab a hobbit and take it to Mount Doom. 
<laughs> I don't know where this eagle comes from, but it does not come from Australia. I checked with an actual Australian. <laughs> I am not kidding. My Australian friend got a very weird text message. This eagle is the size of a small plane. I don't even know what plane. time it was. Yeah, this eagle <laughs> is the size of a small plane. Um, it is about five times the size of this boy who's like eight. Um, this this is absolutely a Middle Earth eagle. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, um, I, w I was like, I sent a very weird text message to my, to a friend of mine who lives in Canberra, Australia, and I was like, so y'all just have, like, child snatching eagles down there? <laughs> and to his credit, he immediately sent back rescuers down under. <laughs> and I was like, yes, yes, that's exactly what's going on. Well done. Um, and he was like, well, a group of them have been known to carry off kangaroo, but no, they're, they're, they're not usually child-snatching eagles. Thank you. It's Dingo took my baby, not Eagle took my baby. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, uh, the, the animators, uh, playing a little fast and loose with uh, some of the wildlife. However, the uh, the type of lizard that Joanna is, those things can reach like eight feet long. So that's not out of the realm of possibility. <laughs> One of those Again, things. Yeah, and kudos to the animation team for making these animals move as realistically as possible while still making them work for a Disney movie. Yeah, they're kind of cute Disney creatures, but they do move relatively uh relatively realistically which is kind of cool um but yeah uh Cody is is too intent on getting getting the eagle free to the point where he like absolutely just falls off the cliff and would fall to his death if the eagle hadn't saved him so um yeah. Again, but, that's the, you know. the scene the scene is beautifully animated. Especially for this being the first movie they used computers to animate the whole thing on. The backgrounds are really gorgeous and especially when they do the fog whenever there's a waterfall. Mhm. Mm they would do this again in Pocahontas and they would do it even better. Mhm. Mm uh, I think we talked about it in Pocahontas, how every time the mist from the waterfalls, um, it looked really gorgeous. And they, they practiced that here. Um, and it it looks good. And there's a nice watercolor. They were still using that kind of watercolor background effect in this one. Mm -hmm. And it looks really pretty with the Australian scenery. Um, so I liked it. Um, but Cody uh, not only is does not fall to his death but he does get the the nice uh giant eagle friend which is cool yeah and then eagle uh Marahute takes Cody home to meet the babies that the eagle eggs that yeah. that that she is uh about to hatch but um 
Yeah, there's, her, there's no daddy mate. eagle. There's yeah. no daddy eagle. Her mate has been killed. Um, but she she gives she gives him one of her feathers. This is very Tolkien because it's like you got a giant eagle and it gives one of the golden hairs from its head, which is very Galadriel. They mm. they should have just done like animated Tolkien at this point. And of course, Cody saying, "Mo, my dad's gone too," because we need a dead parrot in a Disney movie. Yeah, thanks Disney. Um, but you know, as as Cody's trying to uh, make his way back home, uh, he sees a little a little mouse in a trap, and he's like, "Don't worry, Mousy, I will get you." And the mouse is like, "No, no, no, don't do it, don't do it." And of course, Cody is uh, not the brightest child. Uh, and so he takes out his knife and, uh, does that and falls into a giant pit trap because the mouse was bait and he doesn't listen because Cody is not the brightest child. I don't know if I've mentioned that. He just wants to save animals and, you know, whatever. I mean, I, I save animals, but I'm not like, you know, I don't He's very naive. Let's, let's just say that Cody is very naive about the world. Again, he's eight. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he falls into a giant pit trap, which summons the, uh, the poacher, and the poacher's like, yeah, I'm gonna get me a, a nice, plump boy. And, but he sees the, he sees that he's got an eagle feather, and he's like, oh, you know where the eagle is, and then he decides to add kidnapping to poaching, because if you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound, and... And also, we find out that it was, in fact, uh, McLeach that killed the father, the father bird. Yeah. Because he has the trophy of the feather of his own. But fortunately, since Cody saved a mouse, the mouse immediately goes to the RAS uh, outpost in Australia. Outpost in Australia. They've gotten better since the last movie. I guess fifteen years will will get you better inf infrastructure. And there's like a whole network now. Yeah. Yeah. This whole, this whole scene is actually pretty good of them relaying this little. Um, this message, this telegraph message. Yeah, uh, it it is much better than uh, weird a message in a bottle. Mes message in a bottle. Yeah. So yeah, if this was in modern day, it would just be one message on the internet, which would make this a completely different movie. But I do like the relay system. I like seeing all the things like it relays to a human outpost and it just says RAS and the guy is like what what does th this message mean and everything but there's a mouse in the corner that's like oh and then relays it on and I like little touches like that that there's this whole I always like the idea that there's a whole parallel world running next to the human world these mice have gotten their stuff together since the first movie they they are relaying that message over and over and over. One even says, send to New York. Because that is the main headquarters of the Rescue Bait Society. Yeah, I don't know why they wouldn't have just sent it to Jake. It's obvious that it originated in Australia, but... I don't think Jake works for the Rescue Bait Society. Jake just works at the airport. 
I mean, every every time I look up a um, like you know somebody talking about this film, he's always listed as kind of like a local operative. So uh, I, they never explain that in the film because he's just at the airport, and then he says, "Oh, you need a guide. I'll be your guide," and then that's it. Well, I mean, maybe. Um, but, but he seems to know what's going on, much like in the first movie where the local animals know what's going on. Yeah, I guess I guess the Rescue Aid Society just shows up so much more. The thing I like about this movie, as far as the plot that I, I didn't like uh, so much before, is that weirdly, even though they're sort of there to save a human child, they're really there to save animals. And to me, that makes more sense for a mouse-driven rescue aid society. And considering that they started out with Euripides' mouse saving a lion. Yeah, why aren't they there to save the animals? Why do they keep showing up to save human children? We don't really need a human character in these movies. Like I said last week, one of the original ideas was them saving a polar bear. And there was going to be no kid in the movie. I, I think that makes more sense. Or a kid stumbles upon the the plot. Like, you know, uh, oh, our rescue mission takes us through this small child's bedroom and they discover us and then they come along to help. You know? Yeah. Cody makes more sense because he's there to save the animals too. Yeah. So, in New York, an emergency meeting of the Rescue Aid Society is taking place because of this message. We don't know how late in the day it is, because uh, quite a number of the members are in pajamas. Yet, at the same time, Bernard and Bianca are on a date. Well, it could be like 9 or 10. Most of the members seem kind of old. Um, and it is a pretty fancy restaurant, so, you know, could be... Yeah. That that prime sweet spot about nine or ten. Once again, with that parallel thing, I love that there's like a whole mouse society living right next to the human society. Yeah, here's this big fancy French restaurant, and in between the walls, all the bugs in the place have 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 set up their own business for for the mice. And there's, you know, the mice are kind of in the the rafters above in this kind of balcony setting up near the chandeliers. It's just gorgeous. And the animation is really pretty, too. And the dress they have Bianca in. It's just, oh, it's so good. So which leads us to our little subplot here of uh, Bernard trying to ask Bianca to marry him. They've been together for a while. And as I've said last week, Bernard is now officially the American representative of the Rescue Aid Society. No longer the janitor. He got a promotion. Yeah. And yeah, they've obviously been together for a while. We don't know how long, but they've been in a relationship for a while. And Bernard wants to make it forever. Although Miss Bianca calls it a partnership. Hmm. They never officially say they're dating. That's kind of the interesting thing I noticed is that but is she the, she does kiss him several times. 
Well, yeah, but she kind of did that in the first movie, too. She gives him kisses on the cheek and stuff like that and calls him darling. And, you you know, you mentioned that last week, is that, like, very quickly they're calling each other pet names and stuff like that. But they're not actually kind of dating, quote-unquote, until the end of the movie where they're snuggling in the mm-hmm. the back of the... They're, these two are at least involved at this point. Maybe not dating exclusively, but they are involved at this point in the in, in, well, in their I relationship. Just, I just find it interesting that in Disney movies of this time, mm-hmm. they won't admit that the characters are dating. Hmm. At the end of the previous movie, it's kind of like, and they lived happily ever after because they didn't think there was going to be a sequel. So, your idea was supposed to be like, oh, they're a couple now and they're gonna get married. But, in this movie, instead of just starting with them, like, married or whatever, they wanted to have this subplot of, um, oh, is Jake there to steal Bianca? Mm -hmm. And Bernard trying to propose and stuff like that. But at the same time... Kids' movies weren't evolved enough to be like, oh, kids understand what dating is. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, everything... This was still the point where Disney was so completely sexless that they were also like... You could have one very chaste kiss at the end of a movie, and that was the only time that relationships were mentioned other than the word marriage. Mm -hmm. Marriage was this nebulous thing that like, and eventually they get married. Well, what is marriage? I'll tell you when you're older, you know, (laughs) it's like, um, they didn't really talk about it. So Disney's in a weird spot here where there has to be affection between Bernard and Bianca to the point where he's proposing to her, but they can't be, like, dating. You know? Mm-hmm. They can't be affectionate because it's a kid's movie. You don't want to suggest that there's any hanky-panky going on between the mice. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Disney would get that flack anyway, just for having implying that they two characters would be interested in each other. Yeah, but they're so they're trying to do it in as much you know. So Bianca has to seem completely oblivious, oblivious to the fact that they're dating. Like, oh, you're such a nice friend. You are great. We have a partnership. You know, it's like. <laughs> Even though we 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 make out and spend lots of time together, but we're even just even though friends. I call you darling all the time and give you kisses, like <laughs> she's from Hungary. Maybe that's how they do it. Yeah, and we live in the same apartment in the same bed. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's very bizarre. Um, so. I I find that hilarious is that this entire thing and they have to do this like Bernard is very upset that Jake is also there and being a more manly man than Bernard. Jake is acting cooler. You know, Jake's cool and Bernard is just this dorky guy. So he's in his 
you know, he's mm, trying to find the right word. Toxic masculinity. <laughs> kind. I mean, I wouldn't go that far, but he's very jealous of Jake. He's very. But it is though. Jake is tra- traditional masculine. He's the outdoors guy who is stronger and skinnier and athletic and everything. Bernard is, you know, not that. He's the nerdy guy that's dating the hot chick, and they happen to run into a hot guy. Yeah, and it's it's so it's such the oh such an annoying subplot. It's such a '90s trope, though. It's such yeah. a '90s trope, and this is a '90s movie. Because it's kind of if you watch the movie, Jake has zero interest in Bianca. Like there is never a point where it kind of. He does snuggle up to Bianca, though. There is one part where they're riding, I think they're riding the snake, that he starts to snuggle up with her, which kind of gets under Bernard's skin. Well, maybe, but it's one of those where I think he figures out very quickly that, like, Bernard and Bianca are together, and he's like, oh, okay. Well, it's implied, when they first meet Jake, he's like, oh, you and your husband are here. Oh, he's not my husband. Oh. He's not your husband. Yeah, I think it's one of those kind of misunderstanding things, and then Jake is like, oh, he's not your husband, but... Okay, fine. And then... Because there's not a lot of flirting either. Like, as far as a weird love triangle go, it's also the the most sexless... The entire love triangle is all in Bernard's head. Because he is so... um, Bianca is too good for me. Yeah. He has so little confidence in himself that he just thinks that Bianca is going to leave him for the first hot guy she sees. Which says a lot about how he feels about Bianca, how he sees Bianca. Yeah, you think Bianca's that much of a flake? Like, come on. Bianca had every man in the Rescue Aid Society jump over themselves to be her travel partner in the first movie, and she chose Bernard. Have a little faith. That's all I'm saying. Come on. She has chosen you, buddy, even though, yes, you are a little pudgy. Yes, you're a little short, for a mouse even. Yes, you're kind of a a, a worry ward and a superstitious guy, but she's still your woman, and she's going to stay your woman. They have totally dropped the superstition. There is not a mention of the number 13 in this whole movie that I caught. Did I miss something? Other than the fact that he mentions, let's take the train instead, which is one of the few callbacks to the original movie. Well, yeah, he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't seem happy flying, but honestly, if I strapped you to the back of a giant bird in a sardine can, I don't think you'd want to fly either. You know, (laughs) like, I'm kind of okay with planes. I wouldn't want to do that. Let's talk about Wilbur, now that we've mentioned him. So when Bernard and Bianca agree to take this mission, they go to Orville's and realize that uh, he's no longer there. Under new management, see Wilbur. And they meet Wilbur, Orville's brother. Who what happened to Orville? We're not going to talk about it because it's a kid's movie. Moving on, Wilbur. <laughs> yeah, so Wilbur apparently is a big fan of Miss Bianca as his brother has told him all about Miss Bianca and how awesome she is. Hasn't mentioned Bernard. Not cool, Orville. Anyway, um... They did kind of uh, clear up something that um, annoyed me about the first movie. 
How can an albatross fly from New York to Louisiana in one night? Yeah, and in this one, they kind of show Wilbur somehow hopping onto, hopping into the cargo section of a plane. Yeah, they they make it clear. Oh, is this going to be a non-side flight? No, we got to get on a bigger bird for this one. Yeah, I I like how at first Wilbur is or yeah Wilbur is very uh, in his own head. Oh hey, uh, you want to go on a romantic vacation? You're gonna take it's gonna be a while because it's a storm. So there's a big winter storm outside. Wilbur says he's not gonna fly because of the storm, and then they bring out oh a kid's in trouble. And that seems to tug at Wilbur's heart enough because to say, no, no kid's gonna lose their freedom on, on my watch. But it says a lot about Wilbur. You know, he, he he cares about kids. Yeah, and and I do I do like that about him. He's he's willing to help the mission. You know, yeah. he realizes that this isn't just a vacation they're going on. They're here on official business, and he's willing to help. You know, he he flies them somewhere, gets them onto uh, a plane, uh, and they end up flying the rest of the way to Australia. This is the only part where the animation breaks down a little bit and the caps system. Uh, when they when they fly over the Sydney Opera House, really bad CG model. Yeah, um, whatever they copied over uh, doesn't blend so well over the years. But once you get past that initial shot, it goes back to being gorgeous again. It really is kind of the only time the cap system breaks down the whole movie. So good job. Uh, mm. Really impressed with how well the system has held up over the years. Um, again, as, as I say, I watched this on a 4K, you know, mm. ultra high def uh, system. So uh, it... It looked really good on my end, so, you know, good good and job. This is kind of where we enter Wilbur's C-plot, I guess? Yeah, this Beca is a really bizarre thing. So Wilbur has his own plot in the movie where he tries to land uh, on the airport that Jake works at because it's the airport in the Outback. But the airport is a very small airport, and he's a very big bird. But he lands anyway and injures his back to the point where they have to take him to a to a doctor. I like Jake's reaction. He's like, "Yanks, they think they can do whatever they want." Yes, yes, Jake. Yanks do think they can do whatever they want. We've gone through about a year and a half of that. Yeah. Um, even Americans are sick of Americans at this point. Trust us, we we feel you. Um, like I said, a very large chunk of this movie is just straight up horror story, and th this is one of those scenes. The whole subplot of Wilbur in the hospital is nightmare fuel, and it feels like the doctor kinda doesn't know what he's doing. I very much does not know what he's doing. I think it's just like. Like Let's... he wants to ha he wants to put he wants to put Wilbur in surgery. Like they don't even know what's wrong with him. He just injured his back. All he needs to do is lay down for a few days. I've hurt my back like that. You lay down for a day or two and you're fine. When you're younger. Well, 
Also, he injures his back trying to pick up Miss Bianca's uh, suitcases. So, what does Miss Bianca put in her suitcases is another thing we maybe should have. It's a joke about women who pack too much. That was a lot of that was that that happened a lot in the eighties. Okay, but seriously though, have you ever uh, traveled with a woman like Miss Bianca though? No. <laughs> that I I. I have I have gone overseas with women with a little too much money before. Bianca is very high maintenance, <laughs> which again adds to the adds to Bernard's fear. You know, she's a very high society girl, and he's kind of not. He's a commoner. Yeah, I'm just saying the stereotype exists for a reason sometimes. <laughs> And of course we get, well, to, to go back to Wilbur, he's like, you can't do this to me. I'm an American. Oh, oh, Wilbur. No, no, no. That's the last thing you want to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, this is where least... we get the weird dead-eyed mice trying to shoot him with shotguns and stuff. A shotgun know, this... full of, a double, a shotgun with two rounds of tranquilizers. And it's just... Rusty Taylor in her Minnie Mouse voice aiming a shotgun, and it's hilarious. So, I've been th I thought about something while watching this movie. So, they put two hypodermic needles in a shotgun. Why don't we do that? Because we know how much people love their guns in America. <laughs> we put the vaccines in the guns, and then they can shoot each other with the vaccines. Oh... You know, I wish it were that easy. Can can we conceal carry tranquilizer guns full of vaccine? <laughs> I don't know. Oh. Uh, so yeah, this is where we get. You know, Jake's gonna. Jake offers himself to be their tour guide throughout the outback to get the kid. And yeah, this is where Bernard starts getting jealous because here's this fancy Australian macho man snooping in on his woman while all he wants to do is ask this woman to marry him. Yeah. Who, who knows? Um, but we eventually end up seeing where Cody's being held and it's the other half of the horror movie which is this weird poacher camp. You know, poacher death camp for animals, and there's all these animals, including the world's gayest koala, who I kind of love. I mean, it's just it's just a koala throwing shade at every other animal, in the <laughs> including this neurotic iguana. <laughs> yeah, the weird uh, frilled iguana lizard thing that's in there. Mm -hmm. Um. A kangaroo. They're all just... I mean, they're super depressed because they've seen who knows how many animals come in and uh, not leave unless they are, you know, just a skin. I mean, that's... That's a horror film. Yeah. So they gotta get out of here. Luckily, uh, our lizard here comes up with the idea that if we get the keys, we can get out of here. And Cody, with his ingenuity, gets all of these spare gets all the animals to pull all of these spare parts around the uh, this little cage area, and they make a device that will grab the keys. Which again, it shows that 
Cody has a little bit of brain in him. He's he's not completely dumb. He's just impulsive. It works on uh on uh until Joanna comes back in. Yeah. And steals the keys. I really like the the um the little uh you know, the little frilled lizard uh Frank cuz he's so neurotic and I love him. Uh and then he starts using his tail as a lockpick. And it and works. It, it works, but he doesn't realize it works. So it's one of those jokes where he's on the outside of the cage and he's like, "We'll never be free." And then they're like, "No, no, Frank, you're out. You're out." And then he's like sticking his neck back through the cage and he almost walks back into the cage. And they're like, "No, no, no, you're out. You're out." <laughs> and then he's like lets his frill out and then he gets stuck in the cage. Cody has to like put his frill down and like tighten it to like corkscrew him out. It's yeah. it's a really cute scene. I like it. And again, it would have worked if Joanna hadn't come back in. I think this time with Nick Leach. Yeah. She brings Nick Leach. We also get like a cute I hesitate to call it cute, but it is kind of cute. It's funny. It's a little, uh, a little slapsticky bit where we get to see life with McLeach and Joanna, where Joanna just really loves eggs, and McLeach has like a whole bunch of boiled eggs, and. Yep is trying to keep them away from Joanna, and there's this whole sequence of him, like, moving the eggs back and forth, and Joanna trying to be sneaky and trying to get the eggs. And it's pointless in the film as far as it doesn't move the plot along, but it really is kind of a good little slapsticky Three Stooges kind of bit. It shows the relationship between McLeach and Joanna. Yeah. Like, Joanna is only thinking about her next meal. Even if it's at the expense of her of her owner, yeah, it's there's not really any affection between them. This is not a a typical human pet relationship. It's very much a, um, I will feed you, you will do things for me. And you know they make a thing. You know, I give you all these other eggs. I give you eagle eggs. I give you possibly. I give all these different eggs. Just don't touch my eggs. Yeah. And it's in that speech that McLeach figures it out. If I let the kid go, he's going to go to the eagle eggs. And that's how I'm going to get the eagle. Yeah. Yeah, so he, he tricks Cody. He tells Cody that, like, oh, I heard on the um, the radio that uh, somebody shot the eagle, and now those poor little eagle eggs are just going to die without their mother to sit on them and keep them warm. Knowing that Cody's going to be the impulsive little kid that doesn't think about it and just goes, I have to save the eggs, and is going to run right to them. And this is the part where all of the plots come together because at this point, uh, Wilbur tries to escape from this quack doctor and cracks his back back into place. So he's yeah. going off. He's going off to 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 find Bernard and Bianca. Bernard, Bianca, and Jake have made it to McLeach's lair, just in time for Cody to be released. So they hitch a ride on McLeach's truck. 
So yeah. Also, is- also we see in a very depressing side note that spoiler alert never gets resolved on camera. Cody's mom thinks that he's dead because McLeach has thrown his backpack into an alligator a, pit, a, 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 a crocodile pit, and the Rangers found the uh, the chewed up backpack, and they're like, "Oh, crocodiles ate your baby. Sorry." And we just see Cody's mom being like, "Oh, my baby," and that's the last we see of Cody's mom. We never even see her face in this movie. Yeah, it's very Muppet Babies. Yeah, or Charlie Brown if you want to go that far. Yeah, it feels more Muppet Babies to me for some reason. I don't know why. Well, Muppet Babies was on TV at the same time this movie was out. Yeah, the animation, the way it is, just feels more Muppet Babies to me. So yeah, we get Cody going to the eggs... Bernardo Bianca riding with McLeach and Wilbur all flying in the same direction, all as this, uh, as these three plots are are coming together. Bernardo Bianca and Jake finally make it and try to convince this kid it's a trap. Don't move. McLeach is right on top of the hill. He's going to capture the eagle. Get out of here. But Cody, I don't know if I've mentioned this, rather impulsive and sometimes not the brightest of children. Yells at the eagle, get away, it's a trap, get away. And the eagle's like, a a what now, huh? I don't understand English. I'm one of the weird animals in this film that doesn't understand English. Did you say you brought food for me and my babies? (laughs) And it's enough for, it's... Where is McLeach getting this technology? There's a he shoots a rocket out of his truck that explodes into a net that captures the eagle and ties itself up. And Cody, because I don't know if I've mentioned this, but Cody is an impulsive child and not the brightest, jumps out into the chasm onto the the net that holds the eagle. Which then makes Jake lasso Cody's foot, and him and Bianca hold on, but... Bernard falls off. Bernard can't quite catch it, so then Bianca goes flying, and they're like, Bianca, no! And Wilbur's like, wait, Bianca's in trouble, and starts flying that way, and oh my goodness. Cody, and then of of course, Cody's impulsive... We kind of skipped this one part because I want to talk about it. Oh, goodness. Bernard is left behind. As we said, Bernard yeah. is unable to grab the rope in time and he's left behind. So Bernard actually does something smart and hides the eggs. Replaces them with some conveniently nearby, equally as large rocks. That happened to be egg-shaped. Yes. And as at the same time McLeach is sending... Joanna down to eat the eggs. Says, I have the eag- he wants I have the to e- make sure the eagle stays rare. Yeah, because if the e- eggs hatch, then it's no longer a rare species. For some- well, sure. So 
he's purposely trying to endanger the species. Let's just call that. Yeah. So he sends Joanna down to eat the eggs, but the eggs are actually rocks. Beautiful animation on Joanna, because that's how a, a lizard would eat eggs. Yeah, she's trying to eat the eggs, but she can't get her teeth in them. They won't crack. They won't slide down. So she just takes her tail and just whips them off the side of the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, nope. the cliff. One way or another, these eggs are gonna crack. Yeah. But yeah, Bernard has... It's a, it's a nice, smart move by Bernard to hide the eggs as Wilbur flies in. Bernard tells Wilbur that Bianca's in trouble, but the eggs still need to be kept warm. And, well, you're a bird. Could you do me a favor? And, of course, we have our trope of the guy not wanting to do woman things. It's a 90s movie. Yeah. But, uh, and, of course, it's a, it's one of the oldest jokes in, cin- in cartoons. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I should have told him, no, now I'm doing it. <laughs> Yeah. So for this kind of knocks Wilbur out for the rest of the movie. As for the rest of the movie, he's sitting on these eggs. Yeah. Um, that's this is kind of the last we see of Wilbur in action. Yeah. He has jokes. We see him again, but as far as an active part of the film, that's kind of it. It's almost a waste of John Candy. Yeah. But I don't. I don't know how you. Do what more can you do with this character that would be uh, proactive with the story? But here's what it does, though, for Bernard: is it forces Bernard to be more proactive, which I do like. Yeah. Um, earlier, earlier in the movie, we see we saw Jake uh, get assertive with a snake, saying, "Hey, I don't have time to talk. I need to get somewhere, and you're going to take me." And the snake agrees. He does the same thing with, uh, what is this, a warthog or something? It's a, ra- it's a razorback. He, he, he goes to this razorback, grabs him by the tusk and saying, I need to get somewhere and you're going to take me. Yeah, I, I like it because it just, he immediately goes up to the razorback and is like, you know, listen to me, I'm going to do this. And the razorback's just like, yeah, okay. Part of me wonders if the, if the pig just kind of isn't like, you could have just asked. Like, you didn't have to get all alpha on me, you know? Like, you could have just been like, hey, somebody's in trouble, you know? But we do have that weird thing of, like, which animals speak English and which don't. Yeah. And we don't know which the pig is. And Bernard does not have time to figure this out. Yeah. Yeah, he could have asked, but Bernard's on a tight schedule here. He needs to get... To where Bianca is, otherwise this kid is dead. But the thing is, is that um, while all this has been going on with the eggs and everything, McLeach has taken Cody and Eagle and uh, strangely uh, Jake and Bianca and has put them all in a cage and is taking them, uh, has taken them to... uh, a giant waterfall that has a bunch of crocodiles over them? Yeah, he's going to, as he says, he's going to tie up a loose end by feeding Cody to the crocodiles. And instead of just, like, throwing the kid in, he does this whole complicated thing where he 
puts the kid on a rope and dangles him over and makes the crocodiles jump toward him with a giant spotlight on him. And it's, like, dude, he's a child. He weighs like four pounds. Pick him up and throw him in. I mean, he's having fun with this, which is the fall of the Disney villain where they get too cocky. Yeah, I know, but it just is such a such a ridiculous plan. Ugh. But because he's because he's literally wasting time, it gave Bernard enough time to catch up and uh, steal the keys out of the truck, which turns all of the power off in the entire truck. That must be a powerful car battery to power up all this stuff in McLeach's truck here. Yeah. Uh, it is, because it's powering, like, a bunch of really high-powered spotlights and winches and you know, all kinds of nonsense. But he, uh, he gets the keys to, uh, Bernard Jake, I mean, uh, to Bianca and Jake, um, and he ends up, interestingly, tricking Joanna into crashing into uh, McLeach because he runs up McLeach's pant leg as Joanna's chasing him. And Joanna doesn't have time to stop, so she ends up just, like, barreling full, full steam into McLeach. And Bernard jumps off uh, before they fall into the water. But not before uh, McLeach gets a gunshot and ends up... Because uh, he's... And since uh, the winch no longer has power. He's going to do it the old-fashioned way and shoot the rope, which he does. Cody falls into the water, but he's still tied up, so he can't swim up to the surface. Bernard swims down and somehow hand-wavy gets Cody up to the surface and pulls him and ties him to a log enough to keep him floating above water for a while. And Bernard is tying the rope to a log. We don't see how this happens. It just happens. <laughs> um, but there is a nice little bit where uh, the crocodiles are coming after McLeach and Joanna. And McLeach is swinging his uh, gun at the crocodiles to keep them from, from biting him and grabbing him. And then he's like, no, you're never going to get me. I'm better than you. You're never going to get McLeach. And then all of a sudden the crocodiles back off and he's like, ha ha, I beat you. And then he sees Joanna who has like made it to a rock on the side. And it's so, it's such a good bit of animation because she just kind of sadly looks at him and waves goodbye and then he looks back and it's like, oh, I'm about to go over a waterfall. And then he starts panicking and then, you know, we follow him as he falls off of this gigantic waterfall to his death. But that little moment of Joanna on the walk, on the rock, just waving by just very sadly. Yeah, like usually in these kind of things, once the, 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 the sidekick has broken free they're laughing at their villainous their 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 boss's demise this one is just she is heartbroken she knows she he, her her human is about to die and there's nothing she can do about it 
So all she can do is wave goodbye. Goodbye, human friend who abused me. And But you at least fed me eggs, so I'm, I'm going to give you that. <laughs> I think that's what she's sad about. I'm not sure she's sad about the human so much as, like, goodbye, source of eggs. Now I have to go back to hunting, and that is more difficult. You know? <laughs> like, meanwhile, Cody is tied to this log, but the log breaks. But fortunately, Jake and Bianca have gotten the key to the lock and grab onto the eagle and they're like, go, go! And just as Cody and Bernard fall over the waterfall, the eagle dives down and once again saves Cody from falling to his imminent death. Um, and then they soar up to the clouds... And uh, as as the uh, my friend who I watched this with, as he noted, they all have this weird blue glow around them, so it makes them look like force ghosts. So it kind of all looks like they died at the end. <laughs> and since this is kind of the final shot that we see of them, they might have just died at the end because we never see him go back home. We never see him reunite with his mother. As far as anyone knows, they're just all dead. But Bernard was able to get the proposal in right at the end yeah. of the movie. But right at the end of the movie, on the eagle's back, Bernard is like, I'm not waiting a second longer. Bianca, will you marry me? And she's like, of course I will. <laughs> Duh. You know, and then they're engaged now. Um, and that's the last we see of this crew. And then we, we cut over to Wilbur... And he's like, you know what? That's it. I'm not sitting on these eggs anymore. I'm out of here. And then one of them starts to hatch. And he's like, no, no, don't hatch. Oh, you're so cute. And then one of them bites him. And he's like, ow, ow, my bones. And then that's the movie. Yeah, that's the ends of The Rescuers Down Under. And Cody's mom cries forever and ever because her little boy has been eaten by crocodiles. And she never knows he's alive. Yeah. So let's let's uh let's ask the question. Does the rescuers down under have the magic? I mean a little bit. It has more than the first one. It's at least a coherent plot. It's better than the first movie. It probably doesn't deserve the lack of success it got, but it's definitely not anywhere close to the rest of the Disney Renaissance. Yeah, this is not a Disney Renaissance film. Yeah. the Most of the animation is held up with the exception of some of the CG background. I really only saw that one shot. The Opera House shot uh, is the only thing that stood out to me as like, ooh, that, that didn't hold up very well. The rest of it I thought was very, very pretty. But for their first attempt of using computers to make a 2D animated movie, it's not bad. Still holds up. The story is not perfect, but it's a lot better than what what the first movie was. And it's a shame that this movie doesn't really get as much recognition as the original does. It, it at least has a coherent plot. The villain is very good. The, the fact that they have one villain instead of two. You could say Joanna's kind of a villain, but so were the crocodiles in the first movie. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a sidekick. Joanna's a sidekick. It's <laughs> fine. And we also never find out what happened to the other animals in McLeach's lair. Yeah, I mean, hopefully they got out. <laughs> hopefully somebody went back and saved them. Yeah, um, it could have used a better ending. It could have used, like, one scene to wrap up. Like, Mom, I'm home, I'm home, you know. Yeah, like, it feels like the movie just ends. Like, yeah. at, least with the first, at least with the first movie, we got that ending scene of Penny with her adopted family and the, uh, the idea that Bernard and Bianca are going to go on more adventures. It's a this movie one, that stops rather than ends. Yeah, it just stops. They're on the Eagle... Bernardo Bianca and get engaged, and that's it. Yeah. Um, but the I I liked John Candy's performance. Um, the the two leads when they have something to do are are good. All of the vocal performances, save for the kid, I think were really good. Um. But overall, it was kind of. Again, the comparison helps it more. I think if this had just been like a one-off movie that we had just watched, we would have been like, ugh, what a turd. But I think comparing to the original movie, we're like, wow, this is such a step up. <laughs> what an interesting and unique take on the rescuers. <laughs> it also helps that like the technology has improved. It doesn't have that Xerox scratch look anymore. Oh, Yeah. This is a completely new set of animators and a completely new set of writers. The Rescuers, it does feel like there's something to the idea of that world. I just think that people don't know what to do with it. I feel like if you're going to... like we, We've talked about you know Disney likes doing these live-action remakes. We just talked about the one with Snow White. I think this can work as a live-action remake. No... Uh, you don't think so? I want I want this to stay animated. I think this is a cute animated idea. I don't want to see like a CGI, you know, Alvin and the Chipmunks kind of idea. I am surprised that okay, I get it that this movie didn't make the money they were hoping for, and they kind of swept it under the rug. But the fact that they never made the attempt to make a another film in their directed video sequels era. I'm surprised that they didn't. Here's what I'm going to say. If we ever revisit the rescuers as a series, um, it needs to be, I like the idea of, uh, parallel worlds that humans are unaware of. Okay. So it, don't do it like an entire Zootopia thing where it's just like, here's a world all of animals that's kind of I mean, like our own. Like, I mean, there the, needs the to be humans. The Secret Life of Pets did it really well. Yeah, something like that, where it's like, there needs to be humans, and then there needs to be animals having their own lives alongside the human world. But keep it focused on the animals. If there's a human, do it like I said before. Like, they're doing their own thing, and maybe a child stumbles upon their rescue op operation and decides to help. But it should be like, they're there to rescue animals. It's animals helping animals. Maybe a human comes along if you really, really want to. That's mm. it. Okay? I think that the adorableness 
comes from this really complex, interesting world going on right under our noses that we never see. Mm. I love that idea. I love whenever anything uses it. I think it's adorable. And then just keep it self-contained to that idea. Let that be the humor and the cuteness and the whatever. Okay? But keep it focused on animals and how cute animals are and how interesting it would be if animals were doing their own thing alongside of us. Like you said, Secret Life of Pets and all that kind of stuff has been doing that lately. That's cool. Do do that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I like that. Um, you know... So yeah, it's it's at least worth a watch, but I don't know. Can you watch this movie without watching the first movie? Absolutely. I did as a kid. I thought this was a one-off movie. I just thought this was about two mice. One of them was in love with the other one. Like I had no idea they had a for I thought it was weird that like they knew this bird's brother but i'm like okay whatever you knew the bird's brother I, okay so yeah i i think it's worth check it's it's worth checking out you know it's on disney plus if you got disney plus you got i also appreciate that this movie is at least half an hour shorter than the original i think that helps yeah yeah very much so yeah thumbs up for the rescuers down under well, thumbs eh, for the rest of the for me. Thumbs yeah. si- let's say thumbs sideways. Thumb yeah, sideways. It's, it's all right if you if you got an extra time. Uh, this will not be your favorite Disney movie, I don't think. <laughs> no, no. And if it is, more power to you. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. If this is one of your beloved nostalgic bits from uh, from childhood, I get it. But yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's good. Well, let's kind of move on. All right. So, next week is my birthday. Huzzah! So, so uh, we're going to do uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. And the fact that uh, fairly recently this became a Disney movie. That would be the Fox movie, The Princess Bride. As you wish. Ah, so yeah, it's going to be a fun one next week. So tune in next week for that. And officially, officially this episode is now over. So um, thank you for listening. But we have one more thing we want to talk about. And I want to save it for the end because it is very spoiler heavy. Well, if- it's not terribly spoilery. <laughs> It's spoiler enough that we don't want to make it part of the main show. We don't. So if if you uh, want to hear us discussing uh, episode three of Loki in a mostly spoilerish way, s- stick around. If uh, not, uh, thank you for listening and come back next week for the Princess Bride. So uh, I'll let uh, Kiki uh, take it away. All right. So. Um mildly uh, probably spoilery uh discussion of uh loki episode three begins now 
Alright, so uh, as we're recording this, uh, Loki Episode 3 has just dropped and it has caused a minor stir on the internet for being, once again, Disney's first uh, queer representation of a certain stripe. And I wanted to talk about it because it's a topic close to my heart. Yes, in a in a massive move for Disney, Disney now has their first bisexual hero character, main character, what? I don't know. All of these like weird firsts are getting a little uh, strange because they both are and aren't. Um, the reason I said it was kind of mildly spoilery is this is a single... Uh, Line of dialogue? Blink, blink and you'll miss it line of dialogue, really. In fact, one of my friends said that they missed it entirely. I talked about the big reveal on Loki and they went, what reveal? I I watched the episode and I, I, I missed it. Um, but yeah, the bisexual community in general has been, I guess rightfully, um talking about it and full disclosure uh i myself consider myself bisexual um so this is my community and uh my representation specifically we are talking about here which is why i want to discuss it um i don't know this rings a little hollow for me one loki has been both kind of uh, gender fluid and also bisexual slash pansexual however you want to define that um in the comics for ages now even in the mythology loki did turn oh, yeah. into a female horse <laughs> um e even in the mythology um norse mythology loki is uh very fluid in both gender and sexuality so for the MCU to finally acknowledge this um, is uh, kind of, yeah, it's a big deal, but it's also kind of not a big deal. Um, and also it's, it's being done in such a way again that it can be cut out for those places where Disney wants to make money, but they don't want to... They don't really want to say queer things, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and we've talked about this before with other things. We've talked about this with, you know, oh, LeFou is gay, but not in China or Russia. You know. We have a gay couple in Star Wars for two seconds that can be easily cut out for the Chinese market. Yeah, it's it's that same thing again. I think that it probably whenever this makes it to the Chinese or Russian or wherever else market, this line will not be there. I mean, it's kind of. I mean, I, I I don't speak the languages, but there are several languages already for the at the episode when it was uploaded. I haven't checked them myself, but I wouldn't doubt if those languages already had that line removed. I think they did it for Onward, when Pixar had a similar character. 
Yeah, um, if you missed it or if you're not caring about spoilers and are listening without having seen it, um, there is a discussion between Loki and the character Sylvie, who may or may not also be a Loki. Um, And she says, well, you're a really hot prince of Asgard. You must have had a bunch of wannabe princesses or maybe a wannabe prince. And Loki says, oh yeah, a bit of both, probably same as you. In other words, you're a Loki and we're all into both. All Lokis are bisexual. There. Mm-hmm. Bam. Confirmed. Um, the director, Kate Heron, has officially said on Twitter, um, right after... The like moments after the episode went up, she shared screen caps and she confirmed that yes, this is us saying that uh, Loki is bisexual in official canon and that she is bisexual herself. And it was very important to her to make Loki bisexual in the official MCU canon. Um. Which, I get it, you know? Bisexuals get so little representation even from our own community. You know? In the LGBT community, the B is so often silent. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of like, well, you know, you're really gay, but you just don't want to admit it yet. Or, or I mean, you're really I, yeah. straight, but you just want to be trendy. But it's yeah, like, no, have, screw I mean, you. <laughs> I've had both of us have friends that are bisexual that have, you know, married to their opposite gender, and they did get flack for it. Well, you're not really part of the community, you know. You you know. You're not really a bisexual woman. You married a man. You're not really a bisexual man. You married a woman. And it's like, doesn't make them less, you know? Yeah, when when you're bisexual and you're in a straight passing relationship, it's immediately like, oh, I thought you were bisexual. Like, well, yeah, no, I I am. I just happen to be with a person of a different gender than me now. You know? <laughs> it's like... Just if, like, you know, it's like, if me, as a woman, if I am dating a man, still bisexual, if Mm -hmm. I am dating a woman, I'm not suddenly a lesbian, still bisexual, you know? Um, If I am dating a non-binary person, still bisexual, (laughs) you know? It's like, uh, it's like... Your your sexuality is your sexuality, no matter how it's kind of presenting at the time. Um, especially with, you know, bisexual, pansexual people. Um, but, uh, so in, in a way, I'm, I wanted to talk about this because I'm glad as both a massive Loki fan, which we have already talked about how Loki is probably my second favorite character in the MCU. Um, and, uh, as a bisexual person myself, I'm really happy that they're doing this. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
there's a I'm probably quoting it wrong, but there's a Harvey Firestein uh, quote that is something like representation at any cost, no matter what, you know, <laughs> it's like in, in that scene in Loki, it's also the colors of the bisexual flag in that. Yeah, way. it's something called bisexual lighting. Uh, and if you ever want a really good video on it, um, Kyle Colgren has a really good uh, a video on his channel, Brows Held High that I highly recommend on bisexual lighting, that uh, blue-pink-purple uh, lighting scheme. Um, at, at which point the director has also said that she specifically used that color scheme uh, for that scene. Um, but they're also getting the same flack that I'm talking about. Like, thank you for putting it in there, but can we get more than one throwaway line? That... Yeah. That even people who support us, I mean, the the friend that I mentioned that missed it, is an ally. It you says know, a lot it's... that we got more, for lack of a better term, more bisexual representation in Deadpool than we're getting it that we got in Loki. Yeah, I mean, Deadpool, a, a who in the Marvel comics is pansexual, canonically, um in the films is more i mean of course that was fox before the uh official takeover but he but was making in, yeah he was making passes at men and and women yeah so i mean he is more canonically pansexual in his movies than loki gets to be bisexual in in his um maybe they'll get to it a little further in the series but as we've got three more episodes who knows what's gonna happen yeah so i wanted to acknowledge it as a personally significant moment and as a significant moment for the community and as a significant moment for the mcu because they really haven't had a queer mcu character canonically mm -hmm. um so a main character let's say main character because there well, yeah. has been background characters and there was yeah. the one russo brother that 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 had a line about being on a date with a man but main yeah, in the captain MCU america character. yeah the captain america support group that did have that that line yeah um yeah and once again, that line can be cut out for foreign markets, even in that. I'm just sick of us being able to be excised in other countries. You know, Disney did this entire rainbow capitalism for pride. They were one of the first. Including, they were the first. including they, a... A, a um, gay day at their park. Well... And Disney put out this year, and I still want one. I never got to, around to ordering one. Um, a bisexual Mickey ear pin that I really, really desperately want. Um, I was at the Disney store in downtown Chicago about a week ago, and they have the the rainbow shirts with, with the uh, the rainbow. Uh, it's Mickey's hand making a heart, and it's the rainbow flag in the heart. Yeah, and they they've been putting out like. What is it? The the rainbow is for everybody or the... the so, something like that. Something like that. They've got this like cute little little thing they've been doing. 
And um, one of the creators was talking about how he kept trying to put queer themes in his cartoon for the Disney Channel. And they kept saying, no, you can't put that in because we can't cut it out for the foreign market. And he said, I beg creators in future to keep throwing this line back in their faces. I mean, not to not to jump to a different studio, but Rebecca Sugar risked her own career because she wanted a gay wedding in Steven Universe. Yeah, I mean, Cartoon Network has been really good about it. Um, strangely, um, Owl House, which mm-hmm. isn't Owl House Disney? I believe so. Um, has had, it has a canonically, um, uh, bisexual main character. Um, yeah, so, I mean, Disney has, you know, they're willing to do it at least in that. I, maybe they weren't looking to sell Owl House to a different market. Maybe. Uh, maybe... MCU is just too much money to to lose. The MCU is their <sighs> biggest is their top franchise. Avengers is, you know, Avengers Endgame was the highest movie of all time. The highest grossing movie of all time. So to have their number one franchise like I think they're going to be be a bit more careful with it. But I mean, we're, they've already risked having Shang-Chi or Shang-Chi not even be released in China because of the, th- the the theming that they're using in that movie. Yeah, but it's it rings hollow, Disney, for you to do all the like buy our rainbow themed merchandise, but you get one line of recognition from a character so that we can easily cut you out so we can make money in China. So, you know, speaking for myself, um, yeah, I'm going to be riding the the bisexual Loki train all the way to the station, I guess. But at the same time, I really want to be able, you know, I want Loki to be as bisexual in every country as he is here or not exist. I, I want I want Disney to have you know Disney is unstoppable. We talk about it all the time. Disney owns everything everywhere forever. You know if if you're gonna have that pow- kind of power, use it. Maybe for good for once. Maybe just once look at look at another country and go, no, you don't get Loki. You either get bisexual Loki or you get no Loki at all. Yeah. Deal with it or don't. That's your choice, but that's that's the choice you gotta make. You either gotta deal with a queer character or you've got to deal with just not having it. You want to ban it? Fine. 
we're still going to make all of the money in the world. And honestly, I think if they actually put their foot down and made that decision, all the countries other than that one, Loki becomes the biggest thing in the world. Tom Hiddleston becomes the face of the resistance. You know? And apparently Tom Hiddleston has apparently been pu pushing for this. That he's he, wanted he, this storyline. He, he is the executive producer of the show. So he does um, have, he does have a, a certain amount of pull. So um, as far as I know, he himself identifies as straight. Uh, I have never known him to, to claim any sort of queer identity for himself. Um... But, uh, I mean, if he does, please come out. That would be awesome. Uh, but he has apparently been pushing for them to do the gender-fluid Loki, you know, bisexual Loki, you know, thing for a while. Um, and bless him for it. I'm, I'm glad he threw his weight behind that. But, um, you know... It could be a moment, you know, if they would just say, like, we're going to throw the entire weight of the mouse behind refusing to give in to these weird, bigoted, authoritarian governments in other places. That's kind of, I mean, as much as I, I personally have my issues with uh, f forms of capitalism, that's the good you can do. That's the power of the dollar right there. Yeah. Or, you know, insert currency of choice. So if you're going to do it, do it all the way. Um, I, I dislike this kind of, you know, throwaway line and we'll forget about it. Like, you know, have, have, go, go Game of Thrones with it where you're going to have like sex position that you can't cut out or something, you know, like have Loki in bed with several genders of people saying something that is so plot relevant that it can't be removed and just go like, nope, either you get this scene or you don't get the show. Done. I don't know. That's, that's my feelings. Thank you for going on that journey with me. <laughs> Um, but I, I needed to get that out of my system, so, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, if you have, uh, any, uh, any words you would like to say on the subject, uh, feel free to, uh, let us know on our social medias and such. Yeah, and... I'd love to hear what anybody has to say about it. So, uh, I think that's all we can say right now. Again, thank you for, uh indulging us on this one uh come back next week for the princess bride and we will talk to you all then bye, bye. don't let the magic stop here join our conversation online on facebook at rewatching the magic 
Twitter at RewatchTheMagic. And of course, new episodes every week at RewatchingTheMagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it.